0: Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you all. It's something special, kind of, about a small crowd. Um, Let's begin by praying here before we go into the Word. Dear Lord God, we come before you this morning. And so many things going on in our lives. Uh, We come to you uh, with empty hands, and we ask you to fill our hearts with your Word, uh, that we would have peace um, in our daily life, and in our dealings with others and with ourselves. Lord, I pray that this, your word this morning would be uh, an impactful thing to us, that we would carry it with us, and that it would stir our souls. Uh, Lord, these people have come here this morning to hear you, not to hear me. And so I pray, Lord, that that is what is uh, going to happen, that your word would come forth and speak to us all. Thank you, Lord. Please forgive us of our sins, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount with a focus on Matthew 5, verses 46 through 48. Now, these verses deal with what it truly means to be a genuine child of God and a genuine follower of Jesus. These verses are a litmus test on whether or not you are a true believer or not, but not in the way that you're thinking, perhaps. So I'll be explaining this further, so before you label me a legalist, bear with me. Let's read the word here. We're going to read from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And as I said, with an emphasis on the last three verses. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect... I was tempted to just go on to Matthew chapter 6, but, and that's actually what I started doing. I started looking at uh, chapter 6, verse 1, and started preparing, but then as I went on, I just felt compelled to go back. So I can say the Lord guided me to go back to these verses, and He has revealed to me a great deal from these verses. I have been praying for months that God... Would bring me to a place of peace and rejoicing in Him. And I can say, in experiencing what God has shown me through these verses, that I'm rejoicing this morning. And it feels so, so good. Um, And so, just as in my last sermon, when I preached from the same text, I invited you to share in my struggle. Well, this morning I invite you to share in my rejoicing. And I think that um, you'll see why as we continue on here. Because the Lord here reveals all the more the perfection of His love. Well, we have seen thus far in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is not putting forth some religious or moral, ethical program, He's not putting forth a list of rules to follow. Many have in error viewed the Sermon on the Mount in that way, but it goes much deeper than that and has a far greater deeper impact than that. It deals with who man is without Christ and who God calls us to be only by coming to Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is at first very much frustrating to us as it strips away any hope we have of righteousness independent from God. It tears us down in order to lift us up. The sermon reveals a deeper character of God, and it lifts His law high, and it crushes us under His glory. Jesus reveals the true divine nature. As he puts forth the standard of righteousness which God requires. Last time we looked at loving neighbor as well as loving enemies as thyself. Which is the final of the six illustrations that Jesus uses to correct the the scribes and Pharisees' false doctrine. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, their doctrine had been built and morphed on tradition for many years... And he corrects all of that. He drives home the internal over the external. He drives home the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. So last time when we looked at loving enemies, loving neighbor and loving enemies, he says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you once again. I want to just review a little from from that last sermon since it's been a while ago since I preached. You know, that was back in August. Um, So let's review this misinterpretation by the tradition of the religious teachers and the correction by the Lord. And this this should set us up well for what I'm going to get into here in just a minute. It's going to set us up for the scriptures we're going to focus on. Well, let's do this review first by looking at the Lord's initial statement here. From verse forty-three of, five, of chapter five, ye have heard that it hath been said, "Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy." But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that persecute, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So the teaching of the Pharisees was basically, your neighbor is the Jews. And you can love them at a distance. Everyone else, you're justified in hating uh, because they're not, they're not your neighbor. And so they dropped as yourself, number one. We talked about that. And everyone who was not a Jew, it's okay really just to hate, just to flatly hate. Let's look at the Old Testament command first that, we, that was twisted from Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. And it says this. And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be as one of yourselves. And thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so there's a, there's a command right there for not only to love the the Jew, your, your brethren, but to love even the stranger that dwelt among you. So evidently, they had just totally ignored that aspect. And then God makes this statement. I remember I said last time that God bracketed these commands from the Old Testament. He began and ended with, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the Lord your God. And back in Leviticus 18, he says that when I send you to the land, I'm sending you to the land of Canaan. You're not going to be like... Uh, the Egyptians where you come from, and you're not going to be like the Canaanites where you're going. This is my standard you're going to follow. So I am the Lord your God. Do this because I'm the Lord your God. You're going to have my standard. My word is going to be your standard. And his standard is perfection, always has been. And Jesus reiterates this. But so they had totally left off this idea of loving the stranger. And, and that's, that's pretty sad because nat- the natural man will easily justify hating if he can, if there's any reason to. So they, that, that they justified hating by misusing the imprecatory Psalms also which we talked about that, and those are the psalms that David calls for judgment on his enemies. And he calls God to save him by bringing wrath on his enemies. And at first glance, we're going to look at one of these psalms. Now, obviously, you know there are many. But at first glance, it looks like, yeah, I can see where they would get, you know, it's okay to you know really just stick it to these enemies of ours and hate them. Let's look at Psalm 139. 21 through 22. Psalm 139, verse 21 through 22. This is one of those imprecatory psalms. And here David says, through the Holy Spirit, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. On the surface, it seems like, okay, maybe they are justified in hating enemies. But we got to look closer here because there is a principle that we must apply to this to help us make these things work together because there's no contradictory in the Word of God. There's no error in the Word of God. So David says here, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate who? That hate God. Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? Not that rise up against me, but that rise up against you, God. I hate them with a, what kind of hatred? A perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. So, even when Jesus says to love your enemies, he directly implies that you have enemies. We talked about that. You have enemies. David knew, and he says exactly right there who his enemies are. And who our enemies are are the enemies of God, which are really all those who are outside of Christ, who blaspheme the, the word of God, who mock the risen Savior. These are our enemies. And the hatred is not a personal hatred. Understand that. That's the, that's the key to understanding and making these things come together. The hatred is not a personal hatred. It's a perfect hatred. David doesn't just hate somebody just because they're not a Jew, or they, he doesn't just hate somebody because they you know, said a bad word to him or hurt his feelings or anything like this. I mean, you can read, you know, throughout First, Second Samuel, and and Chronicles. He was very little concerned about what people felt about him. I mean, of course, it hurt him, but his concern was what they were doing with the name of God. And so, our enemies are the same enemies David had. And so, yes, there is a place for that perfect hatred for the Christian, a, a, a righteous indignation against sin, against the mockery, but that's not how we're to act in our personal relationships. That's not how we're to treat people on a personal level. So we'll see, even in this text that we're going to focus on today, that there is a principle of a judicial side of things and a personal side of things. And this is this is the judicial. So even back when we talked about um, an eye for an eye, remember that they were they were u- they were doing the same thing. They were using the principle, the command "eye for an eye" to justify their personal vendettas against people. But the "eye for an eye" is a good law that was that was in the Old Testament and put there uh, as a judicial thing to bring uh, a, a right punishment for the crime, equal justice. But it's for the law courts. That's how the there was a judge there. Remember, we talked about that in that principle of "eye for an eye." Not to have a personal vendetta against people. And so they were misusing this. They were misusing the imprecatory Psalms. They were just totally negating Leviticus 19. And Jesus corrects that. And so we must remember that it's not a personal thing. It is a more of a judicial thing. The call to love enemies we talked about last time is an important one. Remember God said back there in Leviticus 19 to love the stranger that dwelt among you because you were a stranger in Egypt. We talked about how God loved his enemies by loving us from Romans chapter 5, that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that's an enemy of God, Christ died for us. For all of us here and Christians everywhere who are born again, we were once an enemy of God, even waging war against God through our thoughts and actions. And it took a Christian, another Christian, loving his enemies by preaching the gospel to us for each one of us to be saved. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You wouldn't be saved today if a Christian somewhere along the line didn't love his enemies and give you the gospel. And so we don't withhold the love of God or the truth of God on our enemies. We pray for them. We bring the truth of God to bear on their life. Even if they look at it as us hating them or they look at it as us insulting them, Because the same one who said, love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy, is also the same one who looked at the group of Pharisees and said, you're of your father the devil. So in order for us to have been saved, somewhere a Christian had to have loved his enemy, had to show us love. You wouldn't be born again if it wasn't for that, because God uses those means. So we see a principle here of personal versus judicial. I want to talk about this briefly. Primary with God in the Old Testament, there was a judicial view of God. But the primary with Christ in the New Testament is personal. God came down, met us on our personal level, showed us the person of God. He healed the the blind. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed people with a few loaves and a few fish. He met us on a personal level. He did personal things. He showed us the personal side of God. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, that's not to say that God in the Old Testament was never personal. He was. And it's not to say that God in the New Testament is never judicial, for certainly He is, because we deal with justification and, and all those things in the New Testament as well. But what I'm saying is the primary perspective you see on God is in the Old Testament is primarily judicial. But Christ has come down. And now we're able to see the full revelation and the personal side of God. And this is what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. how to de- Dealing in a personal relation, dealing with people on a personal level. Both the judicial and the personal are, are of equal importance. I want to add that. Well, let's move on now to this statement by the Lord that we find... In verse 47. What do ye more than others? What makes you so special? What sets the Christian apart from the most pious Jew or Muslim or Roman Catholic? What do ye more than others? You see, the last few verses here in Matthew 5 reveal... And listen, church, this, this is important. The last few verses in Matthew chapter 5 reveal an essential element to the gospel that is too often overlooked. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is paradoxical, meaning that there's an apparent contradiction in it from beginning to the end. Not really, but an apparent one. This is brought out when the man Simeon, who's seeing the baby Jesus in the temple... Scooped the child up and held him up and said, This child is set for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. You see the paradox. This child is set for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. This is an essential element to the gospel, that it's paradoxical in that way. The gospel always does these two things. Always, when it's preached. Anywhere and everywhere always does these two things it crushes and it lifts up it grinds us to a powder and it fully restores it teaches us we must lose our life before it can be saved before there can be a new birth the old man has to die and the gospel doesn't just do this once it does this upon salvation and it continues through sanctification As Paul said, I die daily. Is there anything, I mean, we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I'm sure you guys have read it on your own many times. If you've been a Christian long enough, if you haven't, start reading it. Is there anything more discouraging or more frustrating than the Sermon on the Mount? Think about it. Seriously. We go through all this. God revealing his deep divine character here. The character that he says we should have if we're his children. And he finishes this section with okay, be perfect. For your Father in heaven is perfect. You have to be perfect. He says there, what do you more than others? We go through all this. Okay, it's not just your, okay, you don't murder? Okay, well, great. But you would if the law didn't didn't restrain you from that. And if you've ever been angry with your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. Oh, you don't commit the act of adultery? Well, that's good for you. But he says, if you've ever looked with lust, you've already committed adultery. You're guilty. You're culpable. And then he finishes it off or he finishes this section off with be perfect. Very discouraging. At least initially. And so what does that initially leave us with? A frustrating hopelessness. Leaving us powerless up the river in Niagara without a paddle, just ready to go over the falls unto destruction. Yes, this message brings us to the end of ourselves, powerless and helpless. The Sermon on the Mount damns our every effort before we even begin and leaves us feeling that our situation is utterly impossible. So if you're today looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a mere religious program or a moral list of ethics for you to complete and then check off. The only thing I have to say to you is good luck. It's not going to work. But the message doesn't end there. It doesn't end with that and does not leave us there. Here's the principle of the paradoxical gospel again. Because at the same time, as frustrating and as discouraging the Sermon on the Mount is, there's very little that's more encouraging. At the same time, the Sermon on the Mount encourages us, for it calls us to a high calling. That's what this is. It's a calling to a high level of righteousness. It's a a high calling. It calls us to perfection. Perfection. And here is where the Lord steps in to rescue us because we now see that all the Lord has been saying here in this entire sermon, this is what He's calling us to be. It's not saying this is what you are, but this is what He's calling us to be. And this is what He's making us to be. And there you see the doctrine of sanctification. This is what he's making us to be. This is what you're going to be like. These things, in the sur- if you're a child of God, this is, this is your end result. This is what you're going to be like. All of these principles throughout the Sermon on the Mount going the extra mile, loving enemies, loving your neighbor as yourself, understanding sin on a deep thought basis. All this time through this message the Lord reveals what we must be and we're devastated we look at this and it just devastates us and crushes I could never be that I'm hopeless what's the point we're like the apostles when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven and the disciples said well Lord who then can be saved and what was Jesus reply with man it's impossible but with God all things are possible. God is shaping us and conforming us to be like His Son. That's what this is about. And He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 This is an amazing truth that really is meant to, the Sermon on the Mount, that is, really is meant to show us who we are and what God's calling us to be. This is a, a way that the Word of God and the Gospel is showing how Jesus is lifting us up from the miry clay, that we were never even close to these things. I mean, we would, we'd read the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount and be like, "Ah, what's the point? I can't, even, I can't even do number one. Well, let's look at what we are called to as Christians and what amazing righteousness God has given us by clothing us with the righteousness of Christ. And remember what he said previous in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this is that filling up. Just as a father teaches his children and lifts them up and guides them in the ways of righteousness, God the Father lifts us up here in this Sermon on the Mount, teaches and molds us to his good ways, The father aspect is truly the key in understanding all of this. We're going to get into that more in a minute. But remember when I talked about God dealing primarily in judicial and personal, those, how those things are different. I'm not trying to say that's all that God does or anything like that. Don't misunderstand that. Um, but you know, in the Old Testament, I don't know that God was very much called Father. but Jesus makes God personal to us. And this sermon that he's given this, I mean, he's lifting us up, but he's at the same time crushing the self-righteousness. So the father aspect is key and just as a father teaches his son to you know, to do things, he lifts him up. doesn't just leave him like a little boy. He lifts him up and teaches him and guides him and shows him. I, I, I can think of times that I've tried to show my son something and I could see he's thinking, I'll never be able to get this. I'll never be able to do that. I'm not strong enough. And isn't that what we think when we look at the Sermon on the Mount? But he's not going to just say, hey, love your enemies, good luck, and walk away. No, he's loving, and a, he's a loving father, and he's going to show us how to do that, and he's going to train us and teach us how to do that. And he's going to be long suffering with us in how we learn to do that. Praise God, indeed. Let's look at some verses on this call to perfection through some other scriptures. Genesis 17, 1. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Call to perfection right there, straight to the beginning back in Genesis, the, the father of the faithful. He calls Abraham to a perfection. Genesis 17, 1. 1 Kings 8.61 Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in His statutes and to keep His commandments as at this day. A continual call to perfection. Just as it is this day, continue on in it. Let your heart therefore be perfect. So there's not even just an external perfection. A lot of people cling to that and they can kind of look like that, can't they? But let your heart be perfect. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. This call to perfection is a lifting up. And by the way, I've, I've titled this message, What Do Ye More Than Others? A Call to Perfection. It's a lifting up call. Colossians 1.28 Whom we preach, that is Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. There's got to be perfection. If you're going to see God, there's got to be perfection. Perfection. There's nothing short of perfection enters His presence. But He's going to present you perfect. God's perfection from Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His word, His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment. A God of truth And without iniquity, just and right is He. We are called to be like God. To have the divine character. We're not called to be just moral men. But we're called to perfection. This is a big time lifting up. And though I realize and confess... Myself, like many of you, I have not attained a perfection, but I am called to perfection and the Father is working that perfection in me because he is not just God to me, it's not just the judicial, but he's Father, he's also Father. Now let us go back to the statement, what do you more than others? The verses say, for if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. What do ye more than others what sets the Christian apart I think and I'll I'll tell you this that um, in preparing for this um, the teachings from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones really helped me but as he says there people have really it's a tragic thing that people have really diminished or forgotten the uniqueness of what a Christian is So let's consider the uniqueness of the Christian. What do you more than others? And there's a litmus test here. Whether you're really in the faith or not. Many think that the Christian is just a man who makes a great effort to be good, moral, kind. If this is your notion of who a Christian is, please throw that out. For after all, there are many moral and upright people who flat out reject Christ. Or there's many moral people that may give Christ lip service, but they're not truly His. There are many pious religious people who are honest in their business. They don't defraud people. Uh, that we would see them as good people, good to their families, good fathers, good mothers, well-respected, but they reject Christ with indignant scorn. And they reject any notion that, you know, they're not good. But the Christian, the uniqueness of the Christian is the Christian does what good men can't do. The Christian does things that these good men cannot do the statement what do you more than others is said in another way back in verse 20 unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees you will no wise see the kingdom of God or enter in there are many who believe in God who are religious and highly ethical, and they follow their religion to the letter. Many of you know what I'm talking about. But they are not Christians. The Christian does more and goes beyond all of that. The Christian is not called to a human goodness, but to divine perfection. Let's look at the difference in the two views of God okay the natural man primarily thinks of God as someone who's to be obeyed and to be feared and he is that but not alone the Christian has come to know him not only as God but as father the Christian loves God and he does not think of God's laws as grievous or hard He goes beyond all others to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The religious moral man may observe the law, but he never goes past it. He can go the first mile, but he cannot go the second. The natural man who is moral and ethical does not consider the spirit of the law. He gives a grudging obedience to it out of sheer willpower, which is doomed to fail. But the Christian man delights in the law of God after the inward man, Romans 7, 22. Your natural religious man views morality in a negative sense, always negative. His concern is on what he cannot do, and sometimes, how far he can go without crossing the line. I've heard many people say to me, on the street, talking about drunkenness and alcohol. Well, Jesus turned water into wine, and Timothy told, uh, or Paul told Timothy, have a little wine for your ailments, you know. And I'm not, I'm not here to have a, you know, to say anything about drinking. I don't think that's a sin, but I'm, but drunkenness certainly is. And, but they're viewing it, they're, they're way off base even before they start, because they're viewing it in light of what can I get away with. His con- the natural religious man, is, he's, his concern is on what he cannot do and sometimes how far he can go. But the Christian has a positive view on morality. And a positive hunger and thirst for righteousness. A thirst for the person of God. The religious, natural religious man can't do that. The Christian has this hunger and thirst for righteousness to the point of seeking after God's person. And knowing that God says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Christian says, I want to be like him. As a son wants to be like his father. An intimacy there, a closeness to God. Not a distant God that's just to be obeyed and feared. The natural religious man views sin in terms only of actions. But the Christian views sin on a deeper level. Like his father, he looks also at the internal, the thoughts, the heart. And didn't Jesus get to this? This is what he was saying to the Pharisees. You're only looking at the external. But it's got to be deeper than that. The natural man views himself as basically good. Oh, he might admit that, you know, he doesn't have everything right. He may say, you know, I I make some mistakes here and there, but I'm, I'm pretty good. He will not admit he is vile and full of sin, as Charles Wesley said. He may admit that he gets it wrong sometimes. He may admit that there are certain defects about himself, but he does not view himself as worthy of hell. He's never poor in spirit. When you tell this man he's in danger of hell because of sin, he regards it as an insult, and he's ready to gnash at you because he's highly offended. Because you've have, you have condemned his every effort to be good. You're saying that I can't... Man, look at the things I've done. You're saying that I'm a sinner? I deserve to go to hell? That, he takes that as an insult. Did not the Pharisees take this as an insult when Jesus was dealing with them? The Christian man mourns over sin and knows he deserves the hot flames of hell and regards the cross of Christ as his only hope. The natural religious man views others with a kind of tolerance, thinking he is superior to others, but he thinks not to be so hard on them. Haven't you heard that from the, the world's perspective these days? We're just to tolerate. But they won't tolerate Christ. The natural man, he, he views people to be tolerated, not to be too hard on them, be nice at times, but he, he can't do what the Christian does. The Christian views others, even his enemies, As sinners in need of a savior. The Christian views his enemies as dupes of Satan. Totally bound up in the bondage of sin. Knowing that he was once a stranger in Egypt. The Christian does everything different. He sees everything different. What do you more than others? Is this you? The religious natural man faces tribulation and suffering with a kind of dignity and a calm resignation. But he is always negative and merely holding himself in check. And is this not to look good in front of others, too? The Christian man, though he rejoices in tribulation, because he sees a hidden meaning in the suffering, he holds to and believes that all things work together for good to them that love God and who are the called according to His purposes. in suffering, and tribulation. You see, the Christian can do something the religious man can't. The Christian still feels the pain and wrestles with it and yet still rejoices. The religious natural man can never rise to that level. You see how special the Christian truly is. How great a salvation we truly have. How great a righteousness we're given by Christ. Now there has never been a natural man that loved his enemies. No matter how religious, he can't do it. Because he doesn't doesn't possess the divine character. God is only God to him. He's not Father. Father. we see this judicial and personal contrast played out again. The judicial side of God may be believed on. The the natural religious man believes on that part of God. But Jesus came to make God personal to us and make Him truly our Father. And so the non-Christian doesn't believe Jesus is God. So then here is the litmus test of whether or not you're a Christian. What do you more than others? I'm not asking you whether you live a moral life, whether you attend church on a regular basis or pray every day. Many people do this and reduce Christianity to this, but that's not the the summation of Christianity. Is there anything special about you? Now, I'm not saying, do you follow these things to the letter? I'm not saying, do you? Are you one? Remember, we can't get caught in this trap because our natural minds so desperately want to go there. We can't get caught in this trap. Well, you know, love your enemies. I'm not doing that perfectly. So, I mean, maybe I fail the test. Now, is there there something special about you? Think about this. Now, many people pray every day. They go to church. They've been baptized. But that's not what we're talking about. What do you more than others? That's what we're talking about. Is there anything of your Father in you? Sometimes we may see children and say, well, there's not an exact resemblance to their parents. But we look closely enough, we say, well, I can see, you know, he looks a little bit like his dad there, or he looks like his mom, or what have you. Is there any resemblance? Do you, do you bear any resemblance of the divine parentage? Because the child will bear the resemblance of their parents in some way. It's unavoidable. And while there may not be an exact resemblance to their parents, we look closer and we, we, if we can say, I see something of His Father in Him. That's the test. If God is your Father, something of the divine character is there. Not just on the surface, but internally. And there may not be now a total perfection, but there is a direction toward it in life, in the life of a true saint. Here, here at this point, is where the gospel either tears you down or it lifts you up. The gospel is paradoxical. If you walk around with a pompous attitude that you're a Christian because you do X, Y, Z, I want to ask you, what do you more than others? Do you resemble your father? Any resemblance? Are you grasping at straws to find a resemblance? And we should examine ourselves here This word is discouraging and encouraging at the same time. For those of us, if you are a child of God, what's the patron, what's the, the, will you say, okay, it's breeding. I, I come from a Christian family. What is the breeding? You must be born again. That's the breeding. That's the parentage. Nothing else matters but that in in, in terms of being a child of God. We can't be too proud to examine ourselves. We can't walk around thinking that, you know, pride cometh before the fall. And so I leave you with this the final thing. If you salute your brethren only. What do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. These religious people who thought they were good. You salute your brethren. Just the people who are your friends. The people who, do, who have something to offer you. You salute them. This word salute there in the Greek. I forget how to say it in the Greek. But it basically means to, 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 to give a good greeting. To, to welcome them. What do you more than others? Even the sinners do that. He says. And then this call to perfection. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. A lifting up, a glorious call that God is the author and finisher of our faith. So Christian, don't be discouraged if you're not there in a, per, in a state of perfection. You probably won't be in this life. But God is faithful to complete that work that He began And this is the high calling. This is the degree of righteousness that you've been given in Christ. And to the one who doesn't bear the resemblance of the Father, let this word crush you and come to Christ. God bless you.